Now, a lot of people think that there's some good cop, bad cop act underway, but that's just not true. It's like he's uh, doing the apprentice or something. Republican Bob Corker slamming President Trump to the New York Times. Wasn't that nice of him? He's so arrogant. He's such an elitist snob. He's the swamp. If Bob Corker has any honor, any decency, he should resign immediately. He should not let those words stand what he said about the he president. He wouldn't win, Steve. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who is not a man because he's a baby in a daycare. And the daycare cannot contain him, so he toddles in the streets shouting, caw, caw, and making traffic stop for him because he's not a sweet baby like the baby Jesus or Honey Boo Boo. He's a Chucky monster baby who is also our president, Donald Trump. Today to talk about the latest installment in Trump tantrums is Susan Glasser, the chief international affairs columnist at Politico. She also hosts their brilliant podcast, The Global Politico. And that is another must-listen, because seriously lost in the chirps and eeps and orps of the reality show that is our president can come the very real rumblings of war and rumors of war and international affairs gone sideways. And that's why we're talking Trump tantrums and international affairs today by parsing the recent words of Senator Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee, who's on the Senate's Committee on Foreign Relations. And it turns out, actually cares about averting World War III. Corker was not the right person for Trump to pick a fight with over the weekend because he responded first with an extremely tart and illuminating tweet, and then with a piercing analysis of the ludicrously unfit and childish president, a cabinet that cannot contain him, and the very real threat of nuclear winter. Oh, that. Susan Glasser got an interview with Trump's toady, Senator Tom Cotton, this week, and it's very revealing. In many ways, what Cotton says stands as a counterpoint to what Corker says. He proposes, this is Cotton, that Tillerson and Mattis, that's the Secretary of State and the Secretary of War, are keeping this ship afloat. Did I just say Secretary of War? What is it, 1939? Jim Mattis is, of course, the Secretary of Defense. Cotton suggests that Tillerson and Mattis, by contrast, should resign if they can't get with Trump's program. But that doesn't mean that Trumpcast listeners should resign rather than get with Trumpcast's program because we have a live show coming up in San Francisco on November 14th at 7.30 p.m. We're going to have some great guests with us. Jacob and Jamel will be with me. And you can find tickets to that at slate.com slash live. We're going to be back with Susan to talk about all the senators But first, the tweets. Senator Bob Corker begged me to endorse him for re-election in Tennessee. I said no, and he dropped out. Said he could not win without my endorsement. He also wanted to be Secretary of State. I said, no thanks. He is also largely responsible for the horrendous Iran deal. Hence, I would fully expect Kurtger to be a negative voice and stand in the way of our great agenda. Didn't have the guts to run. 
Bob Corker gave us the Iran deal, and that's about it. We need health care. We need tax cuts reform. We need people that can get the job done. The failing New York Times set little Bob Corker up by recording his conversation was made to sound like a fool. And that's what I'm dealing with. Joining me today is Susan Glasser, the Chief International Affairs Columnist at Politico. Welcome, Susan. I'm so honored. I'm a huge Trumpcast junkie, and, uh, you know, the, the invitation was irresistible. All right. Well, let's do it. Um, I, there's so many things we are not talking about today. San Francisco is burning. The first and third wives of our president are bickering. But instead, I think we should talk about these uh, crazy senators and our secretary of state. Give us some context for what happened with Bob Corker over the weekend and, uh, and yesterday and coming into today. Ah, uh, the irresistible Corker uncorked plot line. Uh, <laughs> Let's go. You know, months in the making, but uh, like anything, both totally predictable and a complete stunner surprise when it happened, right? And that's that's the thing with a, a lot of these plot lines. By the way, you mentioned the first and third wives feuding, also an extremely predictable plot line. I'm amazed we haven't had that one <laughs> oh sooner. I so want to go off on a tangent, but let's go okay, back to Corker. So back to Bob Corker. Uh, here's the interesting thing about Bob Corker. Bob Corker was not a never-Trumper. He might have the profile of a never-Trumper. And what's interesting is that he tried, and I think genuinely and, and very hard, to be a work-within-the-system guy. We have to accept Donald Trump and find a way to manage Donald Trump guy rather than a this is unacceptable and we can't we can't even work with it, never-Trumper guy. From the beginning, he was very opposed to many of the foreign policy views of Donald Trump, but during the campaign, he very pointedly uh, did not come out and, and endorse someone else in the primary. He didn't work against Donald Trump. He was rumored to be under consideration for Trump's vice president. He was rumored and indeed actually had interviews to be Trump's secretary of state. And, you know, when I talked with him back in February, the very beginning of the Trump administration, I found Corker to be one of the most interesting, even clearly tormented, however, uh, sort of proponents of the uh, engage with Trump, let's manage him, let's change his foreign policy views rather than let's just fight with him, senators. And so he tried that. I think he genuinely tried that. But it blew up. Ever since Charlottesville, he's been publicly on the outs with Trump. What is the context is very interesting for why are we having this fight right now. And I think that really goes back to Donald Trump attacking his own secretary of state, attacking the grownups in the room, and therefore sort of destroying Bob Corker's theory of the case. Remember, Donald Trump's tweet attacking Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, and telling him to not waste his time on diplomacy with North Korea. That came not this past weekend, but the weekend before. I think Corker was furious about it. And then, of course, there was the crazy, humiliating spectacle last week of Rex Tillerson then being forced to give a press conference where he denied that he had considered quitting and, by the way, pointedly did not deny that he had called the president a moron. You can say the whole thing. 
<laughs> well, a he, fucking moron, he, right. Right, he diagnosed chronic fucking moronism in the president. I think that's how I think of it. Um, well, I, my, my guess is perhaps there were multiple incidents, so who knows what the exact uh, uh, quotes were. True. What's interesting is that it's right after that, basically, that Bob Corker is cornered by a bunch of reporters on Capitol Hill. And he speaks to them, by the way, not once but twice. So I think he, he meant to do what, what he did, which is to say he came to the defense of Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis, who were both publicly disagreeing with Donald Trump's stated plans, which, which appear to be moving forward this week, to decertify the Iran nuclear deal. And uh, so I think there is, as, as is true with many fights, there's a substantive dimension that gets lost in this. But there are substantive foreign policy disagreements where Trump is basically, for the first time, preparing to really explicitly overrule his secretary of state and his secretary of defense rather than just kind of complain and push and, and backstage fulminate. He's now preparing with the Iran nuclear deal to actually frontally disagree with these two leaders of his national security team. So that's the context. And then you have Bob Corker gets up there. He talks to these reporters on Capitol Hill, and he says, basically, Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis are what's saving our country and the world from chaos. And he's pressed a lot by the reporters on this. It's pretty darn clear the chaos he means is right here in Washington. It's at the White House. And that, and he underscores the speculation that there may be a detente among the generals. He doesn't include McMaster and does include Tillerson, which is uh, a little bit of a twist on the old hypothesis that the they were the ones keeping anarchy at bay. But that is scary because he then implies that they can't do this forever in the in the in the now infamous daycare tweet you know sometimes they're going to miss their shifts as principled and um you know marshall as kelly and mattis are they can't um watch him all the time and uh, so, t- so tell us about that tweet. Well, that's right. So what happened then is he gives the sort of saving the world from chaos tweet. And, you know, clearly Donald Trump is fulminating about that and presumably fulminating about Rex Tillerson over the weekend. And so Trump is never one, as, as you know, to let a punch go unanswered. And over the weekend on Sunday morning, he lets loose his now routine barrage of, <laughs> yeah, forget infamous because it'll be lost in the yeah. His, right. his his now routine barrage of of tweets, and he attacks Bob Corker, and he basically says, "Oh, this guy is so terrible. He's not running for re-election, but he begged me to endorse him, and you know, basically, he's a loser, and it's his fault that we have the Iran deal in the first place, which is very interesting." Donald Trump's not the first one to say that, but it's it's a really a very interesting attack on Bob Corker because. Of course, he voted against the Iran nuclear deal. Where does he, well, I'm not going to ask where Trump gets that idea because whoever knows, but where do others get the idea that he that he might have been sympathetic to the Iran deal? So the, the, the sort of very reductionist case uh, against Corker from this sort of very conservative point of view is that although he voted against the Iran nuclear deal and publicly said he was against it, that he basically was too accommodationist in working with the Obama administration and facilitating the bill that is the sort of implementing, executing bill, getting it to the floor, and that he somehow should have basically had a 
fit and said, no, this is actually a treaty and it requires two-thirds of the Senate to ratify it, and I refuse to pass this legislation to the floor. So that, that in a nutshell, is the um, you know sort of bill of particulars against Corker on that particular issue, although it is not, in fact, a treaty. And the mechanism of the Iran nuclear deal is actually uh, a U.N. Security Council resolution. So it's not even a U.S. thing. The, the U.S. law is a separate piece of legislation. I re- I mean, I, I appreciate that you're sticking to the substance of this showdown <laughs> because, no, uh, honestly, because the, as enticing as the Real Housewives of the Senate story is to tell, this is, you know, we're ramping up to a time where Corker says this is extremely dangerous what the president's doing. This is not a name this is not just name calling. This is not just territory that, you know, you you he ought to be listening to the Senate's committee on foreign relations. It's not just chipping off jokes on Twitter. He is really, really ready to sound the alarm that we are risking and this is where he jumps from the Iran deal to North Korea, but there we're risking with the president's um, the president's dangerous behavior and bellicose tweets. Uh, World War Three. Well, look, that's right. That's why I, I brought up the Iran deal. So I think that there are substantive clashes that are informing this, and they do get often lost a little bit in the coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of them is the Iran deal. The other, obviously, is North Korea. As you mentioned, and and I think there are serious differences, internal differences on his team with the president on on both of those. So basically, Trump attacks Corker. He spreads this thing about the Iran deal. He he says falsely, according to Corker, that Corker asked for his endorsement. In fact, Corker and his office say that Donald Trump called him even after he announced he was retiring begged him to run again and said he would endorse him. So you know, once again, you have Trump sort of misrepresenting the facts. And what's amazing is that Corker does not do what most of the other targets of the sort of bullying tweet of Trump do, but he decides to punch back head on. And first, he lets loose with that infamous adult daycare tweet. And I got to imagine knowing Corker and that he does plan these things out, that he's been planning that one for a long time. (laughs) So I think that the tweet was um, the tweet on Sunday, right? Sunday Mm -hmm. was— Sunday. was, um, it's a shame the White House has become an adult daycare center. Someone obviously missed their shift this morning. It is lovely. It is funny. It's a great one-liner, two-sentencer. But it also, as you say, telegraphs some really powerful stuff that he then unpacked in an interview with the New York Times. No, and I think, again, like, that's what's interesting to me, is that none of this, I'm sure Corker was angry, but... I believe that he very deliberately acted to respond to Trump on Sunday, that he clearly knew ever since the chaos quote of the previous, I believe it was Wednesday, that Trump might go off on him at any moment. And he seemed to really have a response plan in place. He had this this tweet, this adult daycare tweet, which I'm sure was not a spontaneous combustion. (laughs) And then he arranged this interview on Sunday with the New York Times. He had two aides, according to the New York Times, present and on the line with him. Uh, And he clearly communicated what he wanted to communicate. It wasn't just a case of being caught, you know, out jogging or, you know, in front of his house and and popping off in an ill-considered way. He, He said what he wanted to say. And what he said was, as you pointed out, uh, that the president of the United States might be putting us on the path to World War III. And he also said, basically, well, I'm retiring from the Senate, and I'm telling you what all the other senators 
here think privately but aren't at liberty to say. And I'm also telling you that his staff basically is terrified of him and spends every day figuring out how to manage him. Right. And uh, I mean, maybe some of them enable him, but but certainly Tillerson, Kelly, and Mathis, he names them. So he, it, this is not now just speculation from the outside that Kelly's in a, you know, prison guard role and that Mattis is the sanity and one of the adults in the room and Tillerson the same. He just explicitly, Corker says it. I mean, anyone who missed that interview and even the tweet, it is, I think it's like a rhetorical triple axle. Um, because he's sending, first he says, okay, tell me if you think you agree with this gloss. He's not just telegraphing or signaling that Trump should be further constrained or even removed from power. He's saying that temporarily he already has been, that most of the people in Congress, I think he says that, know he's unfit and suffers from this chronic moronism. And Tillerson, Kelly, and Mattis have put him in daycare are more or less running the country or keeping us from anarchy, but they can't constrain him and run things forever. And so they either need reinforcements or they need, maybe I'm overreaching here, but he's sending a signal to maybe the cabinet and possibly the Congress to do something to seriously curb his powers or, fingers crossed, impeach. Or remove him via the 25th Amendment. I mean, you can't talk about unfitness and perilous behavior that risks World War III without bringing to mind that there must be some mechanism for removing a crazy president. Well, I, I'm glad you picked up on the unfitness issue because I do believe that is what makes this particular conversation around President Trump different from previous or more standard issue conflicts that, that by the way, presidents have often with people in their own party as well as in in other parties, right? Uh, so, you know, it's not in and of itself so extraordinary that you should have conflicts and even policy disputes that spill out into the open that even become nasty and personal. What, what does strike me as different is the volume and tenor of the conversation around the specific question of fitness or unfitness for office and the president's mental condition, which suggests people pushing towards an Article 25 conversation far more even in a way than impeachment. But, of course, it's even harder to envision a scenario of removal under that provision than it is under impeachment. So either way, it still appears quite remote that there's any current chance of action. And and, and the response, uh, the public response from his Senate colleagues in the last 24 hours suggests exactly why uh, nothing is likely to happen in the short term because – how many people have publicly jumped to Bob Corker's side of this argument? Zero when it comes to current other current elected officials. Uh, it's possible that he's also sending a signal to our enemies, and in particular North Korea, that he's a baby and they will have to contend with Tillerson, Kelly, and Mathis, Mattis, and also... Not to take him seriously, with which is a kind of framework that we've tried to send the world over and over again that, you know, just because dad is shouting swear words at you doesn't mean, <laughs> please don't hurt us. Please don't hurt us. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the signal to the base or to voters might also be, well, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think he's talking to, in addition to talking to New York Times readers, and possibly to his fellows in the Senate and to Trump himself, 
who do you think he meant to reach with the with the interview and the tweet? You know, that's a great question because uh, I think that that really would dictate how you ultimately analyze this and, and understand it. I don't think he's talking to the voters. I think he feels liberated not to talk to the voters. Uh, and yeah, he's not running again. That's right. Not only is he not running again, but in fact— you could argue that a lot of these otherwise seemingly inexplicable conflicts and problems are happening because Trump is almost exclusively focusing still on a campaign-style way of thinking, right? You know, you could argue that a lot of these things, the NFL crusade or whatever you want to call it, being a good example of that are because Trump is fundamentally focused on his approval ratings amongst uh, his base, what he perceives to be his base, and is at times focusing on that to exclusion of other issues. And even where that then causes other significant either governing problems for him or international problems for him. That's my view, having watched closely on foreign policy over these last nine months that feel like 90 years, that he mostly is still thinking about foreign policy in almost purely domestic political terms. And that's why we see him doing a lot of stuff that otherwise doesn't really make that much sense and that his international uh, counterparts probably find almost impossible to decipher. And and so, Corker, you know, your question is, what's this World War III thing, man? I do think it it continues to devalue the currency and the, the word of the president of the United States. Uh, it infantilizes him. It suggests that he is a dangerous infant, however, and one that is not that's that's the only area where I disagree with your how you sort of characterized it. I don't think Corker is saying Mattis and Kelly are in charge of the country. I think quite the opposite. I think he's saying if you thought they were, they're not. And Trump is dangerous because, you know, the the inmates are in charge of the asylum is basically how I read the adult daycare tweet. I will say that your very close colleague in the media, that's Peter Baker, um, also um, wrote about this um, following the tweets from Corker and did say that Republicans, I think the original headline was Republicans are nodding their heads in agreement with him, with Corker. And they've since changed that headline, which is interesting because they may have nodded their heads, but, you know, hardly anyone in Congress, came out with huzzas for Corker. Well, that's um, not an, right after this. That's right. So, on the one hand, right again, it's it's not surprising, but it's still relevant. You know, there's no one more liberated in Washington, right, than than a senator who's not running for re-election and still has uh, 18 months left in his term, right? I, I also wanted to make one quick point. He is primarily focused, as you said, on national security. Senator Corker. He is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and uh, could prove to be a real thorn in Trump's side when it comes to things like getting ambassadors or even a successor to Rex Tillerson confirmed. But he's also, he's got a vote in the Senate at a time when you have a two-vote majority. And around Washington, in fact, the talk was not so much about the uh, Iran deal or North Korea, but about tax reform. And that, uh, you know, literally you had, you know, high-paid Republican lobbyists spending the weekend, you know, moaning and, and texting people saying, oh, my God, there goes tax reform. And so yes. they this feel— This is also Mc McConnell, right, has said— he he kind of is team Corker. That's oh no, he definitely is. And both McConnell, by the way, and some of Corker's colleagues did come out yesterday and basically issue 
what to you and me might look like anodyne statements, but nonetheless to to Trump look like practically, you know, raving the waving the it's red right. flag. Exactly. Yeah. They came out with with anodyne statements at least supporting Corker as a good man, a good senator, you know, he's 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 a valuable member of our institution. So they are publicly out there more or less lined up on Corker's side. And and I have to say that there is an essential truth to what Corker has now laid out there publicly. And he's basically challenged everybody and said, well, this is what Republicans think privately and are saying to each other privately, but just aren't at liberty to say publicly. And so the question now becomes, you see lots of analysts already writing, well, is that because they're such hypocrites and they should just immediately impeach him? You know, I think that's unrealistic, both in the sense of the political reality, but also arguably in in a more basic sense about how our democracy is supposed to work. And, you know, this this happened, of course, during Watergate, during Nixon, where there was an extensive and even years-long debate over the president's fitness for office and what to do about these troubling allegations as they came forward. Republicans privately clearly were far more critical of Nixon than they were publicly even up to the very end. Uh, but, you know, our system requires, as as any system does, process fairness, right? You know, it, it wouldn't be the right outcome to just have somebody wave their magic wand and impeach Donald Trump or remove him from office tomorrow, even if that's what every member of the Senate Republican Conference wanted. Uh, you know, due process should also include the president of the United States, right? And right now we don't have a process, never mind a due process. And I think that's really important to remember for however this story is going to end. Your whole due process thing is very wise and also such a buzzkill. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I I wish we could get to your piece about Tom Cotton, who's the sort of third phase of this, um, a third phase of this showdown, um, who came to the president's strenuous defense today. But I will refer Trumpcast listeners to your piece on the subject. I then there's also Lindsey Graham's golf game with the president <laughs> yesterday, which. Uh, which I think, uh, you know, was this very cryptic, the high praise, dear leader kind of tweet that we come to expect from the people who are entirely in Trump's pocket. I think he, I don't know anything about golf, but golf players said that there's no question that Graham exaggerated <laughs> Trump's performance on the golf course. You can't make this stuff <laughs> oh, up. Oh, you're kidding. So, oh yeah, 73 in wet and windy conditions is apparently, you know, better than Tiger Woods could do. And the president definitely didn't <laughs> didn't have that score. But it does suggest that Graham, maybe he's playing, but that he's definitely not willing to um, challenge the president publicly. And since he's another part of the Republican leadership, it's worth looking at all these senators to see which way are, which way they're going. And um, as usual, we're, we're reading some very weird tea leaves this morning. Well, I, look, I know we're out of time, but I just I guess my final point that I would make is is very much in line with your your points about Senators Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, key members of the Republican conference. Listen, I'm sitting here in Washington. There will always be somebody who is opportunistic, ambitious, enough uh, to step forward when others take themselves out. And so if Bob Corker is 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 out of the accommodating Trump business, there will be others. And just like, you know, after Trump was elected, I, I always said to people, they were saying, well, nobody will go to work for Donald Trump. This is a big country. You know, there are going to be enough people to fill these jobs. They won't be the kind of people that, you know, maybe have the right experience or check all the right boxes, but there will be people who step up. And so you may have more Stephen Millers 
and fewer Bob Corkers. And that, but that's true in in the Senate as well. And I think that's just just the nature of how politics works and the kind of people who are attracted to working in it. So, you know, we're not going to change that reality uh, and and get them all to say, you know what, you're right. I've been a total hypocrite for nine months, and now I've really got to just come and tell you guys, you know, I was just lying. I hate Donald Trump, and, you know, that's it. That's just not going to happen. Well, thank you very, very much for being here, Susan. I will, uh, I'll see you um, on Twitter and keep reading you, of course. Oh, well, fantastic. Congratulations. This is, this is an invaluable show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by the great Jason DeLeon. And hey, we know you have a choice of political podcasts, so we want to thank you for flying with Trumpcast today. And if you like Trumpcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a seven-star rating, seven stars out of five, if you like it. If you don't like it, keep it to yourself. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.